welcome to the Eat Realty Heal podcast. I am your host, Nicolette Riche. And on today's episode of the Eat Realty Heal podcast, I am very excited to welcome Suzanne Method to our show. Now, Suzanne is one of the participants in a nine-part series of interviews, individuals that agreed to share their wisdom with us, their knowledge and expertise and lived experiences to support my research in understanding what are the barriers that exist in BIPOC communities around North America, what are the barriers that are there that prevent them from accessing clean, real foods that are capable of reversing chronic diseases. And you will be so incredibly surprised by the responses if you have not delved into these topics ever before. So I encourage you to listen to the whole entire podcast series where I interview nine participants as part of my dissertation by portfolio for my PhD. We might see it as a barrier of poverty, but to me, it's a barrier of actually having um, food security and control over food within communities. Yes. Because right now the food is owned by these multinational corporations mm -hmm. and the seeds and the inputs, whether it's glyphosate, you know, Roundup Ready, whether it's GMO seeds, mm -hmm. whether it's the nitrogen fertilizers, which you don't need because organic farmers use composted poop. Exactly. Why do you need nitrogen? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think the barrier is that now food is no longer being produced in most or many communities, yeah. especially Indigenous communities. And it... Now, Suzanne Method is the author of the award-winning nonfiction book called Legacy, Trauma, Story, and Indigenous Healing. She is the co-author of the Grade 11 textbook, Aboriginal Beliefs, Values, and Aspirations, and she's a co contributor to Scholastic's Take Action series of elementary classroom resource books. Her new YA book, Killing the Wittigo, Indigenous culture-based approaches to waking up, taking action, and doing the work of healing will be published in June, 2023. And I cannot wait to read that book because Legacy is a moving, inspiring, incredibly telling story of the history of colonization and as it relates to our uh, indigenous healing, as it relates to the trauma that prevents that healing from happen, happening and also solutions for moving forward. So you will be moved by that book, Legacy. I encourage everybody to get a copy for yourself. Now, Suzanne has over 30 years of experience creating and applying equity and anti-oppression frameworks building an adult literacy and skills training practitioner, um, and then as an elementary classroom teacher specializing in social justice education. And of course, during this time, she worked in advocacy and direct service positions at Indigenous-led organizations, including the Native Women's Resource Center of Toronto and the Anishinaabek Nation Health and Environment Program, the Y. WCA Elm Center and West Neighborhood House, serving community members healing from intergenerational trauma and reclaiming culture while marginalized by racism, poverty, homelessness, health status, addictions, mental health challenges, crime, and victimization. 
Suzanne has an incredibly huge heart. She is a brilliant human being. She is wise inside, outside. She is connected to everything around us. It is important that we learn from the lived experience, the research, the expertise of Suzanne, and we share this information with others. So please go ahead and share this podcast with others that you feel would love to learn about this or need to learn about this. And then collectively, if we can all start sharing this information, we can collectively start working towards finding solutions so that the healing may begin for all. So thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to the previous three episodes of this nine-part series and enjoy. Hey, hi, everyone, and welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. This show is part of my research that I'm doing to complete my PhD. We're coming up to the end of the research, and today we have the wonderful Suzanne Methot, the author brilliant woman of legacy. So we're going to be diving in here um, to really look beyond all of the risk factors that our current government and current researchers and scientists is saying is the cause of the disproportionate rates of diabetes out there. So, you know, most um, agencies are saying it is because of obesity, alcoholism, it's because of bad lifestyle choices. And uh, Suzanne, more than anyone, because of all the re- extensive research um, that you've done, Suzanne, you know that that's not the case. So welcome to this interview and welcome to our Eat Real to Heal podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to share this time with you. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. So our listeners, a lot of the information you are going to be sharing is information that our listeners are going to be hearing for the very, very, very first time ever, because we've been raised in a colonized world. We have not been taught the history of colonization at all, really, throughout school, and it's been one-sided. And now, though, a lot of research is coming out, including your research, which is truly um, showing what the root causes of these disproportionate rates of chronic disease are. So as I pose that question or statement to you, you know, I'm going to leave it to you to kick off with whatever comes to your heart and mind that you want to share with our audience. Oh, wow. How much time do we have? <laughs> we have, we can have multiple interviews because we have lots of time. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like there's so much that, that, is part of it but what is uh coming to my head and heart first is this whole idea of colonization um meaning and for me i define define colonization as you know mostly historic events happening in the past right the events of colonization you know um, the so-called new world and the making of Canada and the U.S. and all and even Mexico and you know all the the countries of the Americas and then I define colonialism which is like a way of thinking right mm-hmm. so colonialism is still with us today and colonization is still with us today too I mean the government is still actively pursuing policies and um, procedures and, um, you know, uh, a form of, I wouldn't say relationship, because it's not a true relationship, but a, 
a form of interacting with, um, you know, when I speak from an Indigenous perspective, with Indigenous peoples that is very colonial in nature. So the first thing that comes to me is the effects of colonization and colonialism. And for me, that's about control. Um, and I'm using here the work of Judith Lewis Herman, who uh, wrote a book uh, called Trauma and Healing back in the 90s. And it's a classic, um, still available. Um, and Judith Lewis Herman researched, uh, her original research was around domestic violence and the experiences of women who had been under the control of their, um, you know, partners uh, and, and how that looked for them in terms of when they left those relationships. Um, the effects that having gone through that uh, for years and years and years, decades in some cases, depending on their histories, how that affected the way they interacted with the world, interacted with their children, interacted with other people, how they thought of themselves in terms of identity, and agency. And she documented that it was like a form of post-traumatic stress disorder, but it wasn't PTSD from like a one-time experience, like in war or a, an accident or an assault, you know, a one-time experience. And so she called it complex PTSD, mm. where it's all about control, right? And so for me, I use complex post-traumatic stress disorder as, as sort of my, my large over, um, I want to say overlaying, if that's the right word, um, framework to describe the forces of colonization and colonialism, because it's all about the colonial government controlling Indigenous lands, Indigenous peoples, um, and when I say peoples, that means, yes, the everyday, um, you know, departmental people saying, well, no, you can't have your glasses or other medical procedure today because we say no, <laughs> or I shouldn't laugh, but it's kind of ridiculous when you consider it, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so there's that everyday sort of control. And then there's all these larger forms of control, right? Which is like control, as I said, of, of indigenous lands, um, whether it's treaty lands, by the way, or unceded territory. And about half of Canada is unceded. Um, that's, um, and uh, some people don't, uh, aren't familiar with that word. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've heard it spell, I've heard it spell. No, I haven't. I've seen it spelled unseated, like S-E-A-T-E-D. Um, close, but not quite. Unseated is U-N-C-E-D-E-D. -E so not seated through war or treaty making, not you know given away, given over, sold, yeah. exchanged, nothing like that about half of Canada is still unceded, and then there are treaty lands. But in both cases, you know, the colonial government has assumed control, uh, you know, and, and, and so this has resulted in all of these um, effects, both, you know, that you can see starting 100, 150 years ago, when, you know, Canada was starting as a country, and continuing today. Uh, and I think what I'd, I'd like to end with saying is, is that, you know, when you experience control, um, and so I, I use the term, there's a control figure, 
whether it's a colonial government, whether it's an abuser, whether it's, you know, what, whatever the context is, um, you know, it could be like a white system or institution that's sort of authority figures over you, you know, whoever, whatever it is, um, that, that loss of control over your daily life, your way of thinking, your ability to be in the world, um, your very identity, Mm-hmm. All of these things, um, your ability, oh, and this is a big thing, and I don't think I've mentioned this yet, I should add, also your voice. There's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of voicelessness, I find, um, and I should say, you know, that I experienced myself um, growing up in a small northern Alberta town um, with my particular identity and, and just being silenced all the time, being told, mm-hmm. we don't want to hear from you. <laughs> what you say has no, uh, you have nothing to contribute to this conversation. Um, and also finding it hard to speak up to authority figures because I was told early and often that I was lesser, that I was mm-hmm. inferior. And then of course, because of my parents' experiences, um, in their lifetimes, when they became parents, they had heard those messages themselves. And so yeah. they replayed that in the family home, even though they did try to create a family and to create joy for themselves. I mean, isn't that what all people want? I mean, of course, and they tried, but they were, I don't, I don't want to use the word damaged at the same time. I don't, find it as bad a word as some people think it is because I think you know we're all damaged (laughs) in in some ways um but damage is never um it's something you can change um anyway their experiences definitely had an effect on their parenting and so um there's a sense of voicelessness that you have as someone who is experienced you know, any kind of being told that you are not worthy or not enough. And that's what Indigenous peoples have been experiencing for decades, centuries now. It depends on, you know, the area of the Americas, the time of contact, the specific relationships, et cetera, et cetera. So when I look at all of the health um, issues today in Indigenous peoples, in my own family, and certainly in my own life, I see a lot of that as being so connected to that sense of of just I'm not here I'm not worthy and feeling um the big fancy word is depersonalization like you know looking in the mirror and not even recognizing yourself as yourself and when I talk about that it's sort of like um you know it's hard to understand if you've never experienced it maybe It's sort of like when, and and I'm glad that this term is being um, more accepted nowadays after the the COVID pandemic, Um, the idea of brain fog 15 or 20 years ago, nobody knew what that really meant. But then if you've experienced it, as I have for literally decades of my life, once you stop it by getting your health back into balance, then when you're out of it, you just, you look around the room and you go, where was I? Yeah. <laughs> and why was I not here? Where, 
what just happened? Because all of a sudden you're awake. Yeah. And then you, you, so you only realize what brain fog is when or you're awake, <laughs> when you, when you wake up from it, you know, yeah. so it's kind of like that sense of not having control. Your mm-hmm. life is just your life and you're trying to live it. And then once you start making changes, whether it's health, spiritual uh, change. And for me, that was through healing circles and ceremony and reclaiming culture, reclaiming family narratives that had been hidden. Um, once you start doing that, then you start to realize, oh, <laughs> that other place that I was at, wow. And you start to realize the difference. And I, I think I'm sort of rambling a bit, sorry. But, but what I'm trying to get at here is that colonial governments are just, they have issues about control. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they want to control the narrative with the media. They want to control the narrative with the groups that they're dealing with. And they certainly want to control indigenous lands and lives. Mm-hmm. Um, they have big issues with control. And so I want some, um, when I was talking to a medicine person, I was really lucky um, when I, I'm living in BC now, but I spent uh, many decades, 29 years in Toronto, um, you know, working in the urban communities there and, and well, some on reserve communities in Ontario as well, depending where I was working at the time. And um, I was lucky enough to have access to Anishinaabe Health Toronto, it's an urban indigenous health centre. And um, the medicine people that were coming down there um, in the 90s, usually from Manitoulin Island and some other places, um, you know, one of them said to me that, you know, all this, this diabetes, because um, I was having issues. And so I was asking about, could this be pre-diabetes? Mm-hmm. So this person shared with me, he said, you know, it's really about being unable to be happy in one's life. It's like a metaphor, he said, about, you know, we can't handle sugars because it's like our pancreases, they don't know how to handle the sweetness of life. Mm. And I remember hearing that and it's always stuck with me for like 25 years now around, it re- it's really about not being able to handle the sweetness of life. Mm. That That is so it's horrific and poetic and and very much about examining the stories that we all carry and how those are mediated by colonial forces who literally want to control us in our narratives Mm -hmm. um and then understanding okay how does that play out in our in our lives and how does that affect our health um and so high rates of diabetes and auto i mean diabetes is an autoimmune disorder so all of the other autoimmune disorders um you know and i talk in legacy around how our cancer diagnosis rates are going up and up it was once unheard of in indigenous communities very rare now those are going up dementia and alzheimer's is going up all of these things that we did not experience prior to colonization um a couple decades ago, there was some research going on that really wanted to, uh, and it was very European race-based, uh, weird idea about how we were actually responsible for our uh, high rates of diabetes because of some like gene. Remember hearing that? The thrifty, yeah, the thrifty gene. Yeah, the gene. thrifty gene. Yeah. And now we have too much food 
And so like, what? Where do we have too much food? I mean, the rates of poverty in indigenous communities, what? Uh, it was so weird, but it was our genes that were making us diabetic. And it's like, whoa, what is that? But again, that's the colonial government trying to control our narrative, right? So I, did I answer the original question? It's well, you for me, the control. Yeah. Well, you know, what I love about doing narrative inquiry is yeah. that you, you get to just go with it flow like you just but in that it's like I'll just pull out some of the things that I was taking notes on first of all out of all the interviews we've done nobody has framed it under the context of control which I love this because it makes me automatically think and I'm sure every listener here can relate to this that it doesn't matter what race or religion you are but as a child, when you have a parent that's trying to control you, what do you do? You rebel, you get depressed, you get angry, you want to fight back, you, or, or you just are like, you just are submissive and, you know, and you lose that sense of agency. And then how do you behave? How does that child behave when they go to school? So if they have a parent controlling them, often they're wanting to control others at school because yeah. they need to have that sense of agency. So you just see this unhealthy spiral that comes from that, like, you know, the parents trying to, to like get the kid to eat healthy food, but if they're doing it in a controlling way, the kid's going to be like, no, nah, I don't want it because you know, you can take the child to the healthy food, but you can't force it to eat. Right. And so it brings up a lot there. There's another piece just in everything that you said. Um, nobody's termed it in this sense of voicelessness, you know, and so, and again, what happens to me in these interviews is because I've always been approaching it like, okay, if we just eat the right food, we can reverse the disease. And it is true. I can take somebody, get them to eat the right food. Their, their numbers get better. Their diabetes goes away. Their depression lifts. But if they haven't, like you said, reunited with their family histories, their own stories, they're still going to have, they won't have that sense of agency. It's just another form of control in a way. Yeah. versus if that person you know connects with their ancestors and their ancestral foods and they feel connected to those foods there i don't need to tell them to eat it they'll just want to eat it exactly yeah and so there's this been, is huge there's been a couple of media stories and i know people who have done this personally who have like gone back to what some indigenous people call bush food right mm -hmm. because they felt that like the diets that were being given to them by the western educated um, even if they might have been indigenous peoples but western educated like dietitians were like so restrictive and as you say it is in a way another form of control yes. just like schooling can be for indigenous peoples it doesn't mean that we don't want to learn. It means that it feels like a form of control. So thank you for hearing that. Yes. Yeah. And, but yet, as you say, when you go back to just thinking about, well, what foods were here before colonization? What foods are no longer serving me? Yeah. What is my body saying no to, yeah. you know, and what does my body you know, and, and that, I don't want to open up too much here, because it might not be the focus of, of your research, but I just want to mention briefly that that can also be related to dissociation as well. Yeah. That right. if you're not in your body because of traumatic experiences, if you went over here, la la, floating above to try to, you know, distance yourself from whatever experience you were having at the time, 
then coming back to ancestral foods and as you say those narratives and how did my people um, or my community or my family however you understand it um, or how can I could be a purely personal thing you know take the knowledge that we once had that we still have that we saved and use those foods to sort of um, create health it, it brings you into your body yeah that's certainly been my experience where yeah. now I'm not afraid to be here anymore because I understand that oh quinoa is yummy yes <laughs> and if I put some reduced kale in there a little olive oil and some caramelized onions I'm just yeah. saying yeah it is totally yummy and you know indigenous to the americas i mean you know i i get my quinoa from a fair trade co-op down in is it ecuador or peru i uh, can't remember exactly i'd have to go look at the package but you know and and it actually for me has brought me into my body so you're exactly right on that um well yeah and i had that you were speaking about um not recognizing yourself and that was something that hit home for me because I, and all my friends that have known me for many years have known that I, up until a certain point, I was, I had always been saying like, I, where's home? I don't know where home is because I, you know, moved from Africa to Canada. Everything was brand new, but I was young at the time, but even still, I never felt home until I went back to Africa and I saw the way people lived and I saw the way my, you know, grandmother and all the villagers lived and I saw the foods that they were eating. And these are the same foods I was trying to teach people here in Canada to eat. And then all of a sudden it clicked. And for the first time ever, I felt like I was home. So when I returned back to Canada after that trip, like you say, like eating these foods was not something I should do. It was just something I, my whole being embraced because the whole story came together. And I know for a lot in the work that we've done with indigenous communities in the Squamish nation, that, you know, in, in sharing stories about food as medicine, like I'm not here to teach it. Like it's, it's just a remembering process, but it, it's interesting because until that person has that experience of coming home to themselves and knowing their history. So when I would teach about potatoes, I said, you know, we eat lots of potatoes on this therapy to reverse disease. And they'd be like, no, you can't eat potatoes high on the glycemic index. But then when I would share the stories about the, the, you know, once a year harvesting of all the potatoes that naturally grow in the wild. And they'd be like, we did that. I'm like, you did do that, you know? And then they'd be like, we can eat potatoes again. Yeah. But without the fear of eating potatoes, that control yeah. that's been put on people through the dietitians and nutritionists who say you should eat this and should eat that. Yeah. So that's also and, what was beautiful in what you said. Well, I'm sorry. Now I have to chime in about potatoes there, Nicolette. Yes. <laughs> because I grow blue potatoes. Uh, they're not easy to find. You can. There's a few, you know, now that I'm here in BC, Gulf Islands area, you know, I've located a guy in like Pemberton Valley. Sometimes we get them on what we call the Big Island, Vancouver Island. There's a couple people and they're actually carried in the larger chain stores. Not I shop at them all that often, but sometimes you gotta, you know, um, for certain items and blue potatoes is one of them. But so I've started growing my own blue potatoes. And, um, you know, it's, it's this idea of, also monoculture right mm -hmm. because the dominant society grows like only 
I mean, somebody will have to Google this. I think it's like two, three, or maybe it's 20. I don't know, but only a few, uh, maybe it's five. It's not up to 20, a few types of potato. Yeah. And this is what we all eat worldwide because they're exported, they're shipped. Of course, they've been, you know, seed potatoes were taken over to Russia and to Ireland and all these places that didn't have a potato because potatoes were, um, oh, Oh, my friends in Chiapas are going to not like this about me. Why do I always forget? It's not Mayan. Potatoes are Incan, right? I think Incan. I think Incan. In in yes. yes. I should know that. Um, but uh, we, you know, here in the Americas, we, in the larger sense, indigenous peoples of, in the Americas, grew like hundreds of varieties of potatoes. Mm -hmm. And all of them had they're very specific medicinal and health and like energetic properties mm -hmm. in terms of when and why you would eat this and see I'm allergic to nightshades um, mm. I had a medical doctor an MD do all the skin tests we did the big you know elimination diet and the reintroduction and then I switched over to an ND naturopathic doctor for a lot of that other work after that but you know, the guy just gave me, you know, um, EpiPens and said, don't eat potatoes. Uh, and I'm like, what do you mean? Don't eat potatoes. <laughs> I can't live without potatoes. I mean, I'm glad I can still eat sweet potatoes, but like what? And then, uh, you know, I went, uh, I, I went through the list that that MD had given me. Now he was an Eastern European guy. And so being a, you know, Slavic background and coming from Europe before, you know, and, and then starting his practice in Canada, it was clear that he had, in, uh, you know, his own knowledge of farming practices where he was from, because I had no idea the blue potatoes even existed until I saw it on his list. Right. So here's this white guy who's an allopathic, you know, MD telling me, well, don't eat potatoes. And then I'm like, well, what do you mean by don't eat potatoes? But he meant yeah. like the white potatoes because he had yeah. blue potatoes on his list. Right. Right. And so, and then I was like, what the heck are blue potatoes? Yeah. And I've never heard of this. But anyway, uh, not to make this into too much that it needs to be, but I mean, blue potatoes, and some people call them purple potatoes. Yeah. I call them blues, but um, they, that color is an antioxidant. Mm -hmm. And so anybody, well, I shouldn't say this, I don't want anybody to have uh, an anaphylactic reaction, but certainly for me and my MD judged it to be, you know, okay for me. Um, you know, nightshade was one of my biggest things that I became allergic to through, you know, decades and decades of having rampant body-wide inflammation, mm -hmm. right? Um, but uh, I can eat blue potatoes, no problem. And I grow them. Uh, because the blue color is literally medicine. Exactly. That, that antioxidant, it, I don't know what it does, but in layperson's terms, it's like those antioxidants overpower the inflammatory response. Yeah. Right. So even though I'm allergic, I can eat blue potatoes. So, and we had that knowledge. Yeah. But I didn't know about it. And that's because, again, of colonial control, government. Yeah moving us off our lands, um, taking away the knowledge and, and also the trade systems that we had 
because maybe not all of us would have grown blue potatoes, but we would have traded as we traded for so many other items exactly. across the Americas. Um, so yeah, it's very much about, about relearning. Yeah. No, and you've made a lot of people happy right now because the number one thing all my clients say is, what? I get to eat potatoes? I love potatoes. Who doesn't love potatoes? Um, but no, no, it's a very important topic and, it, and bringing up that concept of diversity as well, which is one, of, and I call it a concept because, you know, diversity used to be prevalent all around us. And now it's the one thing that is dying off so quickly. And we have to now make it just part of our existence in our diet, in our relationships, yeah. in our, you know, in, in all aspects of our life. Yeah. So I want to ask you, I want to go back to my original research question, which is evolving. Like at the end, it will probably not look anything like this. Um, <clears throat> so when I say, ask this question, what are the barriers that BIPOC communities face in accessing the quality of foods that are capable of reversing lifestyle chronic diseases? Like what are the barriers? Mm -hmm. Well, let me answer that in this way, I'll give you a two-part answer. Mm -hmm. And I'll try to keep it concise. Um, if you had asked me that 25 years ago, I would have said like the surface symptom of col colonialism, colonization, mm -hmm. I would have said poverty. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, being able to go to like the fancy stores with the fancy foods, um, we can't afford to do that, right? But now, and I think that's what we still hear sometimes today, yeah. and even from within BIPOC communities, um, and I will illustrate this with a very short story. I was yeah. working at, at an agency um, in 2014, and, um, you know, I wanted to do um how much background do you need like you know I, I saw well there you go I saw some of the women were like interested uh in new foods in the place where I was working and and sometimes they would see me eat my lunch you know I'd go into the big you know community gathering space where the empty tables were and they'd be walking through or they'd be talking over there and they'd go what are you eating <laughs> and I'd say oh that's a uh, grated beet salad. Uh, raw beets, carrots, um, some apple. Uh, what else do I put in here? A lemon and olive oil and mm. it's yummy. And sorry, my lips are all red right now from the beet juice. And <laughs> they'd laugh like that's weird food, Suzanne. And I go, yep, but it sure is tasty, right? So through those conversations, I found out that they were interested in these foods and like, I've never tasted a beet. I'm like, you've never tasted a beet. Yeah. But then I'm like, well, neither had I until my 20s, really. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I wanted to do, and I did do like a, a little sort of, do I call it an event? It wasn't really a workshop. It was just getting together with the women. And we did two recipes. Um, we did like a, a fruit crisp. And we did one with cane sugar. Well, actually, it was brown sugar you know, the usual topping that you use with rolled oats and brown sugar and butter. And we did one with coconut butter mm. um, and quinoa flakes instead of the oats. And there was no sugar on the topping, but in the fruit, we used maple syrup. Mm. 
And when I brought this to the staff team, there was a woman of color who like rolled her eyes at me and, and she was a good colleague. Don't, I don't want you to think that, you know, this was the only way she ever was. Yes. We were very good colleagues. But at that moment, she rolled her eyes and she's like, oh, Suzanne, that food is so expensive. It's like, so I don't want people to think that, you know, they have to buy things that they can't afford. Mm. And she had all of these things. And so by then I had changed. So that original answer about what the barrier is, me, you know, I think we still hear this a lot. And a lot of us believe that, well, we can't afford good food mm-hmm. because we may have class, you know, been assigned to a specific class or we're under or unemployed or, you know, generational poverty or whatever it is. But I think the real issue, and as I told her, <laughs> I said, actually, you know, the ingredients were like, I built this into, I guess it's a workshop. I'll call it that. I built this into the workshop. So let me allay your fears around the costs mm-hmm. of these items. And the reasons why the costs are lower is because I shop at a member owned food co-op mm. and all of the things I'm buying or most of them are sold in bulk. Mm-hmm. So we get good prices from the suppliers and then also because it's a member-owned co-op, our um, markup is lower than in the conventional stores mm-hmm. where someone claims that they own the food and then you have to buy the food from them. We are a member-owned co-op and we're dealing directly with farmers, growers, mm-hmm. suppliers, right? And I said, no, I, I don't worry. You can come to the workshop if you want. <laughs> you know, it makes you feel better. I would never put that on the women that we're working with because I know that a lot of them are, you know, unable to work or in school and balancing like three different part-time jobs. I said, I wouldn't do that for them to them. Um, And I think we kind of need to get that out of our head. So my answer today to you would be that in fact, we might see it as a barrier of poverty But to me, it's a barrier of actually having um, food security and Mm -hmm. control over food within communities. Yes. Because right now the food is owned by these multinational corporations Mm -hmm. and the seeds and the inputs, whether it's glyphosate, you know, Roundup Ready, whether it's GMO seeds, Mm -hmm. whether it's the nitrogen fertilizers, which you don't need because organic farmers use compost poop. Exactly. Why do you need nitrogen? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I think the barrier is that now food is no longer being produced in most or many communities, especially Indigenous communities. And if if anybody's familiar with, you know, CBC News, I, I mean, I know this is going worldwide, but, you know, some of the Canadian media outlets who routinely do stories on Indigenous communities who are, you know, doing that work like they might have a bison reintroduction program or let's say they're restoring the clam beds on a particular coast pacific northwest or they've started a community garden yeah clam potatoes (laughs) and beets and carrots and making food boxes or greenhouses in nunavut or yukon where they're growing a few things year-round 
Um, and then using, you know, solar for the heat instead of, you know, um, using things that, that might be a little more contributing to greenhouse gases. So my answer today, I think, is, is um, the other C word that I, I dislike just as much as colonization and colonialism, capitalism. Mm-hmm. Yay. Yeah. Uh, so I guess what I want to end with there is this idea, and it's sort of like the diabetes question. And it's all, and it, and it also happens with climate change. We talk about that today. It's downloaded on the individuals. Like, oh, Earth Day, turn out your lights. What? That has nothing to do with climate change. Yeah. I think CNN, they had a, a, a stat recently. I'm probably going to get it wrong, but I'm sure you can Google this and then correct me. Um, it's like, pretty sure that's correct, of all greenhouse gases are created by, I'm going to say, the top 100, I think that's correct, multinational corporations. Yes. But they want to download it on the individual, right? And so that's the same with food availability. They want to say it's because of poverty, like we can't afford to because so then and then that's the, the colonial pull up your bootstraps, get to work. Then you can afford the real food like everybody else. Yeah. What? Time out. Stop with that kind of thinking. Yeah. That is not what's happening here. We were pushed off the lands where we did, where we knew the wild foods were, where we did have mountain and prairie gardens. Yes, we did. A lot of people think that prairie peoples were these nomadic going where the whatever was like we didn't have agency like we didn't think oh we could take that plant and grow it here like duh (laughs) of course we knew that right we ate inulin containing foods yeah like sunchokes in the mountains right Mm -hmm. we ate wild onion we had wild ginger these things are so healthy when they're added to a nice bison stew, you know? We didn't just eat meat and pemmican, as good as pemmican is. Berries, fat, meat, very balanced. But um, so yeah, I would have said poverty, but now I'd like us to start thinking differently and start yeah. thinking about how the systems and institutions, they lock up all the food and then the homeless and underhoused people you know, who were, and I'm thinking of my local closest kind of town, 20 minute ferry ride away. Um, You know, I mean, I try to always shop at the health food store, the independently owned store here on my small island, but sometimes I have to go to the big island. And there's a lot of indigenous folks who, you know, sit on, you know, the, the stairs outside of the mall where the big grocery store is, or they're at the bus stop or they're, and you know, the food is all like locked up in the building. And it's like, that's the problem. It's, it's not that we can't afford the food or that we can't afford good food. Yeah, it's that we've been disenfranchised. Again, that's the agency um, and and pushed off lands and out of communities and communities and families, as much as we've saved, um, have also been fractured and and taken away from that knowledge Mm -hmm. um, and that ability to have control over what we put into our bodies so yeah and this is um definitely in my research I, I saw this came up a lot for sure a lot more um articles published you know a lot more speakers talking about this um being disenfranchised from the land and 
and which means that you lose the knowledge, right? So, and that's a huge part because even as you talk about knowledge, like, you know, we can, you, we can give vegetables to someone and they're going to deep fry them and, you know, or turn them into, you know, whatever, like even like with the whole vegan movement, it's like, okay, let's take cauliflower and deep fry it and turn it in, you know, like that, is that the healthy way? But when you talk about disenfranchisement from the land, and I love that you did end, end with that, it's that being taken away from the knowledge too, because the knowledge of how to prepare foods in a healthy way, the knowledge of how to use certain plant roots and, you know, different herbs and, and, you know, in combination to treat like diseases too, like also, so you know, talking about the wild ginger, the wild onions, and, you know, inulin containing foods, growing gardens, you know, these beautiful gardenscapes. So that is important. How to use compost, how, all of those things. Um, it's not just being taken off the land, it's being taken away from the knowledge, which is very important. One thing that I just love is um, it was as you were speaking and telling these stories it landed for me, you know, often when you're doing PhD research, you know, or research, you know, a lot of people come up with theories and then they come up with graphs and designs and, you know, that became the picture of the next book, but this is exactly what just showed up. And it's, you know, we have a Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. And, but I see this as this, I don't know what the image will be. I see a pyramid, but seeing the, the superficial thinking, right, um, around what are the barriers that prevent Indigenous peoples, BIPOC peoples from being healthy. And, you know, so yeah, we can talk about obesity, we can talk about alcoholism, but then we drop it down a notch. And then we can go deeper and we can talk about, like you said, 25 years ago, you would have said, and so yes, a lot of people are trying to treat chronic, the chronic disease epidemic that we're in, you know, by just addressing poverty. So then you go into poverty, but then if you drop it down a notch from there, it's disenfranchisement from the land and you drop it down a notch from there. And it's, it's trauma and it's to see it as being so multifaceted, but what, you know, how far down this pyramid, up this pyramid, do we go to, we eventually get to what is that true systemic you know, reason behind these epidemic rates of chronic disease that are, yeah, that are upon us. Um, let's talk about the knowledge a little bit more here, because I think there's, that's an area that even if we did have access to food that like, let's say, you know, we were able to return back to moving across the territories and following the bison and, you know, growing the gardens and everybody has access to the food. Um, is that wisdom really, like, is it lost? Because a lot of elders now have been born into the world where colonization is like that. They've been taught to not eat potatoes. They've been taught to deprive food. They've been taught, like, is it lost forever? Can we get it back? Hmm. The answer I give you today is probably going to be different five years from now or 20 yes. years from now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm 54. And, um, you know, when I was doing agency work in the 90s, so I was, what, in my 20s? What's my math? Yeah, I was in my 20s. Um, how old am I? What year is it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, all it's today it's, it's today. today there you go continuous ceremonial time there yes exactly um you know 
Thank you for asking that question because it, it, as you just said, is another multifaceted thing. And it's different. You're going to get a different answer from any Indigenous person. Of course, BIPOC people will have different answers from within their various communities and perspectives. Um, and we don't always have to agree. But from, you know, and that's the beauty and the richness of conversation and learning and lifelong learning and, and collaboration, um, discussion. But what I would say is I'm going into my memory bank. Mm. I'm feeling reflective now because I want to pay tribute. And so that's kind of answering your question and then I'll move on from there. I wanna pay tribute to the people who did save what they could save. Mm -hmm. um, because those were the people who taught me. I mean, growing up in Northern Alberta, it wasn't cool to be indigenous. And especially if you were from a mixed family from like me, you tried to hide it at, at whenever possible. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, unlucky for me, I think, or perhaps lucky for me, I would say it was kind of both. Um, I couldn't hide too much. Um, you know, it's just the way I popped out. I've got a half sibling with blue eyes and very light hair, never gets mistaken as Indigenous at all. Mm -hmm. Says they're white. Okay, we're mixed. You can be white if you want. <laughs> but I was never, I was never white. I, yeah. I was never seen as white. I was always seen as indigenous or at least as they used to say Métis, but that's incorrect, of course. Mm -hmm. Métis is a specific community. Uh, yeah. My word is mixed. So, um, you know, I knew nothing, right? I knew nothing about nothing. I didn't even know I'd be going through the family albums and saying to my mother, who are these people? Because... <laughs> they're Indians, like, whoa, <laughs> why do we only talk about being Scottish, mom, yeah. right, and I wrote a little bit about that in Legacy, right, so, and so I'm thinking of the folks in the 90s, um, where, you know, I was working at Indigenous agencies, and I was going to the healing circle and, you know, the, the sweats and the pipe ceremonies offered through Anishinaabe Health. And I was able and, and blessed enough to be able to make an appointment with the medicine people who are coming down. And I would ask them questions like, don't know anything, got a question. And, and so through that, they did sometimes tell me a little bit about themselves. You know yourself, every helping relationship is always reciprocal. Yes. Sometimes information is shared both ways. It, not so much in the Western system, but I think in holistic um, uh, and certainly culture-based systems. Um, and so I remember one person, a medicine person, telling me that, um, you know, my... Now, I'm, not, I'm probably not going to get this completely right, but as my memory serves me, he told me that it was either his grandmother, maybe his auntie, a family member, they decided because of who he was and the skills that they could already see as a young person that he had, that he would not be taken to residential school. They were going to hide him. Now, that's a common story. Other people have spoken about that. It, it, it has happened. Um, and so he was, you know, and then he did decades of apprenticeship under another medicine person. 
-hmm. And then in his 40s, I guess, or 50s, he started seeing people on his own. And so, yes, in that community and those people, those families, that family, they held on to whatever they could furiously and and with all um, the the, the sacredness, if that's a word, sacredness, I guess it is, that they needed to use. Um, They held on to that and they they said, no, we're not going to, we're going to, you know, and they did what they had to do. That person was then able to pass that along to all of the people. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm thinking of two different medicine people that I was able to, to um, you know, see and, and ask questions about my health and, and about <laughs> life, the universe and everything, um, that, that they were able to save that. So I, I, I think many things have been saved. Yes, I do. Then there's also the part of me who has worked in community for 30, yeah, 30 years now, since the early 90s. And I do see how much has been lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't like that term either. It, it was never lost. It was removed, mm-hmm. right? So I see how much has been removed. Um, and and I, I know that I, I love my readers. Uh, so many people who have read Legacy have messaged me, you know, emailed me, and said, I see my family in this, thank you, or thank you for saying the things mm-hmm. that I say, but you know, my family doesn't want to hear it, or thank you for being so brave and saying certain things that like sometimes I'm afraid to say, and I'm like, oh, you're welcome. <laughs> I'm used to getting in trouble, it's fine. Um, yeah. You know, and so I preface this next comment with that, mm-hmm. um, just to say that, over the 30 years, you know, there's certain things I, I'm, I, I like to bring up to make sure that we're not thinking in a pan-Indigenous way, yeah. because I think that can be very destructive, mm-hmm. and, and it does happen, and I'll just use one example, but guaranteed it's going to cause controversy, sorry, um, <laughs> where, you know, it kind of bugs me sometimes when everybody uses the term Turtle Island for North America. Right. There are so many creation stories. Yeah. And yes, having lived in Taganto, you know, Toronto for as many decades as I did, I understand the absolute sacredness of the Haudenosaunee and the Anishinaabe creation stories yeah. and there's other groups that may have you know the sky woman falling to the earth on the back of the turtle story but there's also so many of us who do not right. um, I've heard creation stories uh, out here in the coast it's a raven and a clamshell yeah. down south I've had Pueblo people tell me their stories not at all about a turtle right <laughs> Um, you know, in Alberta, I heard a couple different ones, you know, there was um, a little bit like the Sky Woman story in a way, but it was a raft with a wolf on it. Mm. I've heard a story that was about a giant beaver, which I think is so Canadian. Yeah, exactly. Indigenous way. <laughs> that is like, let's tell the giant beaver story. Love um, it. So I try to, to remind us all that we all have to be vigilant against pan-Indigenous stuff, pan-Indigenous thinking. I think we really have to be vigilant, and I pointed this out a lot in Legacy, around, <laughs> you 
you know, and I know I probably, you know, made some people rather upset, but I think we need to talk about how yeah. our governance systems have been replaced by patriarchal systems where we used to at least have a balance mm -hmm. in pre-colonial systems with the power of women and the power of men sitting in balance. Yeah. Now there's certain communities that have saved that today. And one of the examples I knew about from living in Toronto for so long was of course the Haudenosaunee Longhouse mm -hmm. where the clan mothers can dehorn the chiefs, right? So mm -hmm. certain communities have definitely, and of course I can't speak for all communities. I can only speak for myself and some of the stories that I've heard and some of the things I understood growing up some of the things I saw with my colleagues and maybe clients in my work. It's just me from my experience. I can only just speak for me, but um, what I've seen is, is that a lot has been saved. So much has been removed mm -hmm. and that we, we are definitely on a journey of reclamation. Um, I mean, the, the story of the seven fires uh, it's, uh, I'm not going to ascribe it to a cultural group because I think it came from one place and then meh, I don't want to get that wrong, but I, I do say in legacy that there's certain people that I've heard the story from mm -hmm. and, and they're, uh, you know, um, the one woman that, that, um, wrote a book on, about it, um, was, uh, Anishinaabe herself. Um, when we think of that seventh generation, that prophecy in that story that we're the ones who are going to wake up and bring the people back mm -hmm. to culture and to understanding and to all of this knowledge that we've been removed from and that has been removed from us you know that was the seventh generation was gen x baby it was like <laughs> the 90s odds tens and we've seen such a resurgence and such a change yes. and such um, political activism and you know from the multiple resistances but then that one resistance at Ganazatage in the you know 89 90 and what is called Oka you know the, the you know um you know the 90s the odds the tens it's been a, it's been an amazing political and social process and I was lucky enough to be part of a lot of it um I don't think um I don't think anything is, is ever too late. Mm -hmm. I think our, our, and again, just speaking for myself, for myself, um, I think our ancestors come to us all the time from mm -hmm. all sides, being a mixie. It's not just my indigenous ancestors who come to me. You know, we all have that in our, in our histories um, and in our ways of knowing, our culture-based ways of knowing. And, and so I don't think it's ever too late um, but I think we do have to be vigilant about making sure that we're, we're not um, being too surfacey, that we're not being too pan, yeah. that we really um, consult with those who do have cultural and ceremonial knowledge. And that's not, and those are usually the quietest, most unknown people at the community level. Yes. They're not the stars, you know? <laughs> Um, they're not the indigenati, you know. Um, they're certainly not um, necessarily. Um, uh, well, no, I'll get in a whole heap of trouble if I say that. <laughs> so let me just not say that. Um, 
You're leaving us all so curious. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. Well, you know, let me say this. You know, the European insistence on credentialism, I think has, because there's all sorts of different places you can get credentials, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that insistence on credentialism, which I have actively avoided, (laughs) if you notice, I have an undergraduate degree and then I went back to get a postgraduate degree in education, but, you know, I got accepted at the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education, OISE, and I got accepted at York University, both in Toronto. And I could have done the two-year MED at OISE, but I knew I didn't have enough money for two years and probably not enough energy when I was already working and practicum teaching. And how do I do this? I knew I wouldn't survive two years. So I went to York and did the one year and, and I only did it. And I thought, well, good. One year is better than two years anyway. Because I I was annoyed knowing that I was an adult educator and that I had all of these skills, but I still had to get that credential to be able to teach in schools, right? I know. So there's this like Western insistence on credentialism, which um, when you have a lot of work experience, and that's what happens to a lot of Indigenous folks, especially folks doing culture work or healing work. When I think of the medicine people or some of the ceremonialists that, you know, I've been able to share time with or or learn some tiny things from, um, none of them are credentialed in anything. So in terms of that issue, your question, it's never too late, but I think we have to be vigilant about certain things. Make sure we're talking to the right folks. Yeah make sure we're rewarding and taking care of those folks, mm-hmm. making sure they have grocery money, that they have gas for the car, that they have childcare, that they have good housing, where they can do their work for communities, mm-hmm. whether it's planning a community garden, whether it's working with youth, whether it's starting the you know 60 Scoop Survivor Society, whatever yeah. that is, whether it's you know teaching, um, you know, ECE or something, you know, early childhood, education, whatever it is that they're doing. Mm-hmm. And we need to make sure that those, those folks who are doing the work to bring culture-based ideas back into the community and to help people have the support that they need to do that work. So that, that's how I would answer. It's never too late. Yeah. I, I give thanks and props and many energetic blessings to <laughs> this is a funny story I'll end on this you know there there's a family from um Saddle Lake Alberta that that kind of took me under their wing in the early mid late 90s and taught me everything I know about being a free person which is like this much right <laughs> I have so much still to learn but I really knew nothing before I met them really nothing um and, you know, at one point I was sitting at someone's kitchen table in Edmonton um, and this lovely woman from Saddle Lake, you know, someone phoned back in those days, of course, we had no cell phones. So she like picked up a phone from a receiver on the table. Young people, there's this thing called telephone. <laughs> uh, we had the dial pads, yeah. And so obviously the person on the other line must have said to her, what, what are you doing? So she looked at me and she says, oh, and I couldn't hear what the other person was saying, but I heard what she said. And she said, oh, 
just sitting here talking to this little lost Indian girl. <laughs> She's looking at me straight up, right? Me nice with me. And it wasn't a judgment. No. I kind of felt really seen in the worst and best ways. Yes. It's <laughs> like, oh, I know nothing. Um, but it wasn't a mean thing. It was so giving in a way. And it was so, it was, she was connecting with me and just telling this person, oh, well, this is what I'm doing now. And there's a light up outside my door, more people waiting, by the way. There was always someone at this woman's kitchen table, let me tell you. And um, so there's a lot of that. We share, we give, we create that space mm -hmm. to relearn, to remember, mm -hmm. to support each other on our spiritual journeys of what the heck did that dream mean? Yeah. <laughs> and who is coming to me? And what are they trying to tell me? Yeah. <laughs> and we help each other on that. Um, but I think we do have to be vigilant. Yep. About, um, you know, what we put out there into the world. And, and that's the same for me when I write books. I have expert readers from within the community who tell me to get it together on page 24, sweetie. Yeah. You know, and then I have to rewrite it like, ah, can't believe I missed that, you know, yeah. um, and, and against all of those things, but knowing the richness that is still there and that it is waiting to be seen. And then our ancestors are supporting us, but also waiting mm -hmm. for us to remember. To remember. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's, you know, as again, you're telling and sharing these stories and it's so many new pieces are coming out that I could have easily missed. Um, one of these pieces, like the barriers that potentially, one of the barriers that potentially exist, and, and I can see how it really does exist, is the concept of credentialism too. Like, I don't think anybody would have said that, but of course, if all the credentials go to medical doctors to say that health, the only way to achieve health is through you know, pharmaceutical drugs and surgery, um, or go exercise, or it's a thrifty gene, you know, credentialism in itself is a barrier to people being healthy, because then we discount the traditional knowledge that is there. Oh. So that in itself is a massive barrier. And I haven't read that anywhere. Oh. And so I'm seeing this, you know, we do talk about, you know, definitely in a lot of social science literature, um, the fact that we don't honor traditional knowledge, but we, I haven't seen it as credentialism being, uh, it is a huge barrier. I see that now. And I see that in Northern Saskatchewan, in La Roche, I have a friend there who was in my program and she finished her dissertation, but she did talk about that a lot, how our governments, they send in experts yeah. into Indigenous communities across Canada and say, Go solve the problem. Yep. And then they just like get in and then they're out because whatever they're bringing in is not working, but it's, they have the credentials. So yeah. they are the solution, but it has not, it has not done an ounce of good. And so this is huge, huge barrier. And then there's another barrier to that really came out. So it's not just the, the forgetting or the lack of access to that traditional knowledge, but it's the taking care of the knowledge keepers, right? So 
if, you know, and I hate to say solution, the problem, solution, problem, solution. And I do, I'm like, what is the one thing that we could do that would heal everything? You know, so again, I'm trying to get out of that. It is a problem that we all have, you know, being in this Western world that we want to just fix it. But if we were to fix something, it would be the taking care of the knowledge keepers, maybe first and foremost, like you said, making sure they have food, making sure they have transportation, making sure that they have, that they're, that they're seen, making sure, you know, and, and so that's also another place, like, again, where I'm like, I would have come in, thrown around the kale in the quinoa, but I'm like, whoa, 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 Nikki, let's take another step back even further. So that is huge. So one piece that I, you know, your book is called Legacy, Trauma, Story, and Indigenous Healing. I really want to touch on the, like, not just touch, I want to dive into the trauma piece because you did talk about it. You know, you talk about these micro hits of aggression and trauma um, that are cumulative. So this cumulative stress disorder um, but let's talk about the trauma and the depression and um, you, you, because you do talk about where you, I mean, your whole book is about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how does that play a role in us being mm -hmm. able to access, you know, mm -hmm. just all the other healing, whether it's the food, you know, or the story or the community or the, um, mm -hmm. the land. Mm -hmm. Well, what I would say to start is, is that, you know, the cycle of intergenerational trauma, how one person's trauma can become generational, even though, you know, the third or fifth generations didn't experience what, you know, that, that ancestor exactly experienced. They may be experiencing contemporary forms of colonialism, mm -hmm. but they didn't necessarily experience what that ancestor experienced. But when that cycle, just as I said with my own parents, their experiences, and then despite their best efforts mm -hmm. and wanting a better lives for themselves and a life for their children and having children and having all the dreams, you know, how those are, are brought into the family system, right? And then from families, of course, then it ripples out into entire communities, right? So, I mean, I think there's, there's a way that, um, what did it for me is understanding um, some of the things that you pointed out, depression, higher incidence of addictions, um, you know, some of the, and we've been, you know, talking already about, you know, some of the, the physical health, um, the aspects of, of trauma that, you know, are seen, whether it's diabetes or um, just even increased rates of mortality from accidents. Mm -hmm. um, those sorts of things. What did it for me was understanding when I first saw the Aboriginal Healing Foundation's list of intergenerational impacts, reading that list, on the one hand, it was kind of a gut punch because mm -hmm. it was like, holy way to round up every bad thing about us and put it on, you know, one and a half sides of an eight and a half by 11 page, AHF, thank you you know, it kind of felt like, ooh, that's a lot of bad stuff there. And as someone who is, you know, <laughs> back in the 90s, written a lot of letters to the CBC, I love you, CBC. But, you know, it's, it's, it's 
you know, a reciprocal relationship. We have to be in dialogue uh, around media stereotypes and stuff. I never want to see us only speak about that list because mm -hmm. then it begins to be pathologizing. Yeah. Then those things that are the symptoms of colonization and the ill spiritual, mental, and physical health that that creates begin to be seen as inherent to indigenous cultures. Mm -hmm. So that was the thing for me with legacy. And that's why it took three drafts and a lot of expert readers yeah. um, and some very good editors um, at my press, uh, you know, my publishers, to, to make sure that we had a book that was equal parts. Yes, these things are happening. And we cannot and should not not talk about them. We have to talk about them. Now, if a reader is not ready to talk about them, they might have to put the book aside or put it down. And I've had many readers tell me this, man, that was a tough read. Is it weird to say I enjoyed it? And then I always laugh yeah. because I want you to enjoy the journey and to think about the possibilities in your own life of healing. And that's where we come from the, the enjoyment to the joy, right? But yeah, it's a tough slog sometimes because when you read the terrible things that have mm -hmm. happened under or as a result of colonization and then how that gets passed down intergenerationally, you see that big list. And then it's like, oh my heavens. But I, that's where we have to be careful and how I tried to be very careful in legacy around always stating and restating all the time that this is not inherent to our cultures. No. This is not inherent to it just over and over and over. Yeah. With every kind of situation, context, the chapter theme, whatever I was discussing, even though I know I said it two chapters ahead, I'm going to say it again. This is not inherent to yeah. our cultures in pre-colonial times. This did not exist. We know this because, yeah. pointing to some research, for yeah. instance, about, you know, you know, the, the health of children um, when they registered for residential school and when they left, right? Yeah. So, and trying to, you know, or, you know, cultural beliefs or things that I've learned from the people who have been, um, you know, kind enough to share them with me. Uh, so I think we need to understand that there's a story that we all carry. Mm -hmm. And that story for most, and I'm going to say BIPOC in a wide sense, for all the marginalized people who have been marginalized by colonialism worldwide, European colonialism, by now capitalism. I mean, and we mm -hmm. see this with the floods in Pakistan. As I said, it's the major, and I think this is correct, <laughs> fact check me if you must, but you know, those top 100 corporations creating 70% of climate change. Now we've got these floods, Pakistan, you know, the, the small freehold farmers are now being pushed over the last few decades to go into like monocultures and to use GMO seeds. And the corporation owns all that and yada, yada, the amount of debt that's created. All of these things that we see, so I'm going to widen it to BIPOC, all of mm. us under colonization and capitalism, we have to see that big list of uglies, as mm. I call them. Yeah. Um, not that people are ever ugly, uh, but behaviors can be ugly for mm. ourselves. They can be self-harming, and then they can put harm out into the community and into the family as well. Um, we need to look at the list of uglies and understand that they come from somewhere and then 
understand that we internalize those stories. Because growing up in Peace River, which in Cree is known as Sagatawa, I have terrible Cree pronunciation, but that's my attempt. Uh, <laughs> At least you're trying. Yeah, that's I'm what's trying. important. I'm trying. <laughs> yes, I'm trying. Um, you know, we have to understand that. I mean, well, for me, when I was growing up, I just heard, and it was common conversation and comments would be made sometimes about me directly in front of me as mm -hmm. if I weren't there around again how inferior we were or how mm -hmm. this or how so we internalize stories about ourselves we yeah. certainly internalize stories about others um and then of course societies uh, begin to believe stories about especially others, but even about just society and people in your own community, uh, however diverse that may be. Um, and so I think there's that part there of understanding that stopping the cycle of intergenerational trauma, getting rid of the barriers to health and creating better health through harmony mm -hmm. is about looking at all the ways that we um, victimize each other too. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a hard one because a lot of people would argue with me and say that pulls focus away from colonialism. Yeah. You know, it's their fault. Don't put it on us. What did you just say about climate change? Why are you downloading it to, to us? Yeah. But it's a little bit different because with intergenerational trauma, that's what we call an intergenerational. Mm -hmm. With the removal of all of that knowledge, and with the removal from the lands and all of the other stuff we talked about today, we the cycle is strengthened. And of course, that's what the colonial government wants. Yeah. They want, it was a deliberate government policy through residential schools, through different uh, other things to fracture the indigenous family, to move us off the land. Mm -hmm. That's a colonial tactic and it's happened everywhere. I just mentioned yeah. Pakistan and moving the farmers look yeah. at communist china but it's now communist capitalist china moving yeah. people from villages so they can flood it with the major dams so they can send them to factories to provide you know goods for the export market like it's capitalism is ridiculous okay. and it's ridiculously harming yeah. um, well market capitalism there are different kinds of capitalism like a food co-op or like you know more there are more holistic ways uh, of thinking about you know, that form of exchange. But so when I think of intergenerational trauma and then healing, I think we have to be really aware of, of the commonalities that we share as BIPOC peoples. Um, and looking at how we've internalized that, how that's, um, you know, made us think about other peoples, both within our own communities and, you know, other, you know, non-European communities, and then how we are now assisting the colonial um, agenda of, of, you know, pushing our children to, you know, get a real job like an engineer or a doctor. Wait a minute, what? <laughs> I mean, yes, yay, but also, hmm, how can we bring our own knowledge into those systems and institutions instead of saying, go be like them? Yeah. How can we balance that, right? So, um, and how that trauma then, 
you know, not, not just within our families and communities, but how then when we sort of, uh, I don't know the word I need, it's not that we're imitating, uh, but when we become, when we start believing that we have to change or that those removals were good, that somehow mm. that knowledge is backward or uncivilized or old, um, and so we're going to believe these new things, which are overwhelmingly a result of European Enlightenment thinking. So, okay, we're going to go and do that. But it's not only harming our families and communities, it's also harming the natural world. Yeah. Uh, and so what is our responsibility as BIPOC peoples, right? And, and I start with BIPOC peoples as a term because people of color is in there. So people yeah. of color peoples, anyway. But yeah, I know, I, I always struggle with that too. I always have to double check in my brain yeah. as I say it. I call it by pox. Can we just pluralize it by pox? Yeah. By pox. <laughs> then that sounds like a, a, a pox, a pox yeah. upon your houses. Um, oh, yeah. We've already done that. Okay. We've already done that, been there. Don't want oh, to go back Lord. to that. Yeah, so uh, I don't know if I quite answered the question, but I think that's where I'm at right now with my thinking, which is what is going into a lot yeah. of my work. So I think that's where I'm at is not that, that I, of course we point, I started out talking about colonial control. Of course we identify those factors, those external factors. But if I look at indigenous cultural approaches, the medicine wheel is only one of many, not everybody uses it. It's, you know, a plains thing. So as a, as a Nehio, as a Cree person, I think of the medicine wheel and I think, well, we, you know, some of my teachings around it, there's so many different teachings and ways it can be used, but there's this understanding through my teachings that, you know, what I've heard from other people that there's the internal world and then there's the external world. Mm. So we do have to think about intergenerational trauma, yes, families and communities, but then again, the external forces upon us and how we internally are also perpetuating that and also then also projecting it back out, as I said, onto others, the natural world, into our systems and institutions. And it's all about what stories do we believe about ourselves, about what we know, about what has happened to us, yeah. where we should be going, what we should be um, doing. Um, is there not a way that we can do? And this term has gained some, some use over the last few years, that two-eyed seeing. Yes. Can we not bring both into our work in the systems and institutions? Why does it have to be the one, the European enlightenment stuff? So mm-hmm. yeah, that's where I'm at right now. I don't know if I really answered. You are you, you are perfect. You're doing okay. everything you're supposed to be doing in this interview and which you are bringing new knowledge forward by sharing your stories and and whether it's new knowledge, but I don't want to say new knowledge, but what you're, so I'll start with this. What you're doing is allowing us to see. And it's interesting that we started off our interview talking about your eyesight and the challenges that you were having in your one eye and talking about like, what is it that we want to see and not see and how that relates to the physical manifestation in the body. But one of the big things that I had to highlight it in my notes here is when you said, seeing that these things are not inherent to our culture, not inherent to our land. And I put added not inherent to our earth. And it's a, this ability to see people 
-hmm. not as like, if we look at somebody who is overweight and has diabetes and, you know, is depressed and doesn't, you know, isn't treating their children well, like we're seeing their behaviors that we don't like, you know, or if we're seeing somebody who's slim and they appear healthy and they're, you know, taking medications or not medic, like, what is it that we're truly seeing? And to see as well, like, I love how you talked about the medicine wheel and looking internally and externally. So when we see that, but we also see our histories. And when I ask the question, what are the barriers that prevent us from, you know, being able to access these foods and have these, you know, um, access to land that, you know, eventually gives us the food that we can use to heal ourselves. But I see one of the barriers is not seeing, but one of the opportunities is seeing. We see the trauma. And when we see the trauma, again, it doesn't mean like with the thrifty gene, like, oh, we think it's just the gene now here. We just think it's the trauma. So we have to just treat the trauma, but it's to see it, which leaves me with, um, for now, unfortunately, only because I have 10 minutes before (laughs) I'm being interviewed, but I wanted to ask you, so the opposite of my question, what are the opportunities? Mm. Not the solutions, but the opportunities. The opportunities. Well, I mean, I don't want to feel like I'm copying you because you did just say, see people. (laughs) But, you know, thank you for raising the subtitle of the book, Legacy, Trauma, Story, and Indigenous Healing. The story part is about seeing. I think we all have um, our stories and Mm -hmm. some of them are the same. And that's why I get such lovely emails and messages and, you know, things on social media from readers who say, you know, um, that's like my family or I finally understand my mother or whatever it was. Um, You know, we see each other when we share our stories. And that builds connection and that builds collaboration and it builds strength in marginalized communities because now we're working together um, against some of the external forces that would seek to control us. Um, But I I think too that it it helps us be trauma informed Mm -hmm. and client centered when we talk about seeing because if we think we know someone's story from a file or from a diagnosis, a label, of course we don't, right? Uh, that would be the, that was my attempt to make a noise on the journey. <laughs> well, the wrong answer, yeah. Um, I don't know if it came out that way, but anyway. It did, um, it did. Answer. Okay. Yeah, wrong answer. Um, you know, I was a classroom teacher and I'm still an educator. I was an educator before I went into the classroom, as I said previously. But um, when I was in the classroom, you know, there's a big thing at the beginning of the year where a lot of teachers would read the student records of a student that had come mm-hmm. with them from previous years, previous schools, previous, you know, they're all kept in the office and you can access any student's student record previous grades, labels, diagnoses, problems, issues, letters in the file, anything like that. Um, Sometimes there would be a good thing, but most often it was just bad stuff, the uglies, right? And I made it a a focus of my teaching practice when I was in the public school system 
Um, and I still do work with public school boards and that sort of thing. But when I was actually in a classroom situation in the public school system, I made it uh, a central part of my practice to never go look at those student records mm-hmm. until like, oh, maybe three, four months in. Because then it could be helpful because mm-hmm. then you can see that, oh, someone else said this about this kid. Well, I've seen this and I've, I've, I've been with this kid for three months now and I've never seen that. So, okay, I'll ignore that. Or you'd see something and go, oh, you know, something about what had happened to them. And I would, you know, kind of think, oh, that explains a lot now. I've been trying to figure out why this kid does this when I do this. Oh, okay. Okay. Now I understand it. But I would never read it right away, those student records, because it's like, if you seek to understand someone's story from labels and diagnoses and, you know, incident reports and all that stuff placed in a file. And as I said, it's usually the deficit thinking stuff, the problems with this child, what this child needs and not in a holistic way, but what they need like to correct their behavior, then you're going to have a preconceived story about that child. So to be trauma-informed and client-centered in our work, um, whether it's healthcare-based or, or any other you know, helping profession or just as people in the world understanding members of our family or the neighbor next door, um, I think we have to just interact with people mm-hmm. and hear their stories from them and see how their stories play out in the comments they make about themselves, mm-hmm. the comments they make about mom and dad or my cousin or my sister or whoever whomever um and and to see how they interact with you and to see their skills as well as their challenges Mm. and to talk to them about their goals and when did you feel successful when we did this workshop if it's an adult or this lesson if it's a kid and then you know, have that conversation about, okay, you were so successful then. I'm glad you felt it. When did you feel like you were kind of lost and needed help? Mm-hmm. And so to, to get this narrative from the kid of, oh, and they always know it. Oh, I really felt like I needed help here. Yeah. So instead of going in as the expert and diagnosing top down, create a relationship, talk to that person. Mm-hmm. Um, And then you have a story of that person. So then whatever else you hear, which can be helpful, labels, diagnoses, reports, whatever it is, that is not your your full and and complete and and sort of assumed story going in. You're actually going on your relationship with that person and your knowledge of that person. And then anything else becomes an addition to that you can ignore or use. And then you really know that person. So I think story and seeing Mm -hmm. is just key to everything. Everyone has a story and and there are always similarities. You can say, oh yeah, that happened in my family. But also every person's story is so incredibly different and shaded and slightly just their own. And unless we know a person's story, we don't know them. And in order to do the work we do and to seek, you know, the understandings about what's going on and how we, I mean, I'm going to say, you know, what you said before around, well, I don't want to say problem solution. 
I, I, so I'm going to use the term fix it, but not in a bad way, not in a yeah. top-down way. If we want to fix things, if we want to change things, there you yeah. go. We want to transform things. That's a better yes, word. transform. Um, we need to to share stories. We need to collaborate. We need to discuss. We need to do things like this. You know. Well, this has been huge. Yeah, this has been huge for me and just the work that I do, that just this conversation today, I can see all the areas where my business is going to be informed and transformed um, because it just, you, you can't help it. You can't help but go, oh, right. There is a healthier, more holistic, more sustainable, more um, connected way of doing things. And, and it is, it's by story. It's why I chose narrative inquiry. It's why I chose you. It's why you chose the universe chose you and brought your book to me and made all of this happen. But, um, I think that is a beautiful way of, um, wrapping up this interview and let you, it just landed so beautifully. And I want to thank you for your time. I thank you for your stories. I think this is just the beginning for us. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think yes. so too. We have lots more conversations to have, I think. So I'm looking forward to that. Yes, I'm looking forward to that too. So thank you so much for your time. And I'm going to be in touch with you. Um, first of all, we should also say, how can people be in touch with you? What are, what, what are the places that people should go to be able to access more of you and, and everything you bring to this world? Oh, well, thank you for that. <laughs> um, I don't know uh, exactly what I've brought, if uh, not to be, you know, uh, too humble or anything, but sometimes I look and I go, did I do all that? Or is yeah. that anything really? So it's good to be humble. It's but, good to be humble, but you yeah, have brought, you know, yeah, but I'll uh, say it, you've brought a lot of just invaluable, invaluable go, seeing to the world. <laughs> Well, thank you. I mean, I accept that humbly um, because I feel like there's so much more than I need to learn and do. But um, for what I've done so far, uh, as I say, 54, I'm young, man. I got so much more to learn and do uh, and, and contribute. But, um, you know, there's still a lot of people on LinkedIn. People mm. make fun of LinkedIn, <laughs> but I keep my LinkedIn profile updated because people check it. I get messages they do. on LinkedIn. All there, the people are active there. Yeah, okay, it's kind of dirty, but in the best way. It is. So, if you want to know, like credentials and some, I can't put thirty years on there, but some of the recent places that I've worked, especially education experience and agency work experience, do check out my LinkedIn profile, Great. which is just my name, of course, Suzanne Mathot. I but but everything's linked on my website. So, um, SuzanneMathot.ca. Um, and the last name is M-E-T-H-O-T. -T. Yes, I'm pronouncing it in English. That's a whole story <laughs> we don't have time for now. But uh, um, so, and there are links to LinkedIn. I, I do have a few uh, videos on my YouTube channel. I'll be adding lots more Good. this winter. I have a new book coming out next June. It's a YA, a young adult adaptation of legacy. Mm. So um, I'm adding videos um, and, and gearing up for that and the work that we want to do uh, around that book. So, um, you know, but there are a few on there already of events that I've done and, and talks that I've been invited to, to um, give. 
So there's, but you know, all of the, the little, what do you call them? The little tabs, I guess, the little clicky things are on my website. Amazing. Um, so yeah, the website, LinkedIn, uh, YouTube, and I do have a Facebook page as well. Um, right. You know, uh, so, so I'm out there and whatever uh, people, I, I welcome, um, you know, people's thoughts and, and the conversations that um, we get to have in that space. So. Amazing. We'll share all those links <laughs> down below in the show notes. Okay. Amazing, Suzanne. Thank you so much. I wish I could hug you through the screen, but I'll save that. And um, I'm going to click off now and go to my next yeah. interview. But if, again, like if you want to do another podcast on our show, please, I'm going to give you a link that you can book it at any time. If you're like, right. let's dive into this other topic even yeah, yeah, yeah. or anything. And you're going okay. into your interview, but we'll be in touch later about any other things. Yeah. And the TED talk as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Okay. Amazing. Okay. Go. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. <laughs>